morning. My name's Tony. The Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus 16, 15 through 16, and 20 through 22. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did did the, the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he'll, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Phyllis, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation uh, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Andrew. Please stand for the gospel reading. This morning found in John 13, 34 through 35. I give you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. We are in part five of a series through a small book in the New Testament called First John. Long-standing church tradition is that the John who wrote this first letter, 1 John, is the same John who wrote the gospel according to John. And so we've called the series Beloved because this John, that's how he describes himself in his gospel. Uh, he, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in case we think that this is a little sort of self-congratulatory, he turns in his letter to his churches, to his little congregations, and begins to call them 
beloved. Six times in this letter, he uses this phrase of his church. And so as we're working through this series, as we're working through this letter, one of the themes we're trying to pay attention to is to say, okay, Lord, who are we? What does it mean to live out as the beloved children of God? And so when we started, just a quick recap here, when we started in week one, John gets past his introductory words, his little prologue, and then he says, God is light. And we talked about how when we first hear that, that sounds a little threatening because we think of the searchlight, we think of the spotlight, we think of the light that says, aha, busted. But John says, look, when we say God is light, we mean the saving light of God. We mean the God, the light that cleanses us from all our sins. And it's less like a searchlight and more like that moment when your child is having a nightmare and you come in the room and you turn on the light and you say, hey, 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 look, look around. Dad's here. Mom's here. You're home. The monsters are gone. And that's what the light of God is like. Not a shaming light, but a saving light. And then we moved on in week two and we said, yeah, but John wants us to know there are these commandments that we're supposed to live out in obedience to. And we wrestled with this because when we hear commandments, we think arbitrary rules. And we said, no, 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 no. The Bible has this long tradition of thinking of commandments as the path to flourishing life. And that actually all of these commands are meant to bring us flourishing. And John, in his short little letter, essentially has two commandments. They're really like two sides of the same coin. The first is this prohibitive one where he says, do not love the world and we talked about what John is saying is not, is not hey, you, you ought to you know, wage a culture war, draw battle lines and take a stand. No, he's saying, look, if you set your affection and, and let it turn into uh, cravings, you've actually settled for the lesser thing, the lesser joy, the lesser love, that by, by setting your desires on the wrong thing, you end up distorting both your desires and the thing itself. And so we said, God calls us to love rightly and desire rightly. And then in week three, we said, okay, so as we're learning this, as we're wrestling with this, who are we? Are we a saint or are we sinners? Does it fluctuate week by week? And we said, now, wait a minute. John says, this is who we are now. We are children of God now. In fact, his language is so strong. One translation says, God's DNA is in us. Something has actually changed about you. That's your identity now. And then he says, and in the future, we will be like Jesus. So now imagine this. If you are the child of God now and you will be fully like Jesus, then all the practicing that we do, John says, stop practicing sin and start practicing righteousness. But I love even the image of, of, of practice. It's like a preseason game, you know? That your identity is secure even as you begin to practice. And that was helpful as last week we made the turn toward the second command. So do not love the world one side of the coin. The other side of the coin was love one another. And last week we said, you know, maybe one of the things that hinders us from loving one another is this fear of death. Ultimately this fear that it will be temporary. Why love her? Why love him? Why love them if we're all going to die anyway? And yeah, which is rather (laughs) pessimistic perhaps, you know. But John says, look, we've switched time zones. We've passed from death to life. We are people who believe the world is different 
And while everybody else, the world all, it's midnight in the world around us, it's dawn for the people of God. And we begin to love in this fearless way because we believe that life wins. Now today, we're continuing on this trajectory of loving one another, and the title this morning is Let Us Love One Another. Now, how many of you, be honest, when you heard the New Testament reading, Beloved, Let Us Love One Another, you're old enough that you were humming the song in your head. Beloved, come on, let us love one another. The love is of God and everyone who loves. Okay, okay, yeah, great, it's great, it's great. It's just, it's like a really warm and fuzzy moment, you know. <laughs> Some of you are like, I've never heard that song, nor do I ever want to hear it again. <laughs> okay. There's a wonderful story that comes to us through several uh, church fathers, one of them being Jerome, the story of John, the elderly apostle being carried into his congregation in Ephesus. And picture this. His disciples would carry him in. He's, so, he's old and frail. They're carrying him in. And John stands in front of the, his congregation. And he says, little children, love one another. And it says, the story goes that after several times, this was his whole sermon. And so the disciples would say, John, why do you keep saying the same thing? Isn't there more? Which I have to say is a little encouraging as a preacher. You know, everybody gets on the same thing, right? And, and, and he says, little children, this is the Lord's command. If this alone is done, it is enough. If this alone is done, it is enough. Isn't that beautiful? And then they would carry him out, you know, frail, elderly, Yoda like John, you know. And, and he would go. And then he'd come back next week, you know, little children. Uh, it's just, we're getting worse. Okay. And when we hear things like this, whether it's the song or the image of an elderly John saying love one another, we just get all warm inside. We're like, that's so sweet. I just love it. Let's love one another. And this is at least, there are at least two pitfalls with this phrase, let us love one another. The one is to sentimentalize it. To make it all gushy, mushy emotion, you know? Just sort of like, like social media outrage. You know, you care so much about one issue this week. Next week it'll be a different issue. You haven't actually done anything about it, but you're so full of emotion about it, right? Sentimentalizing justice. And we sentimentalize loving one another. Ooh, I just love them. Just love the poor and the homeless. I don't actually do anything. I just love them. Or you spiritualize it. And this is a particular temptation for us as Christians where we turn loving one another into just a mystical or spiritual act. And so all of a sudden then, whether it's loving God, it becomes this private mystical experience. Or even loving one another, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm just praying for them. I just feel like we are one church when we worship. Great, great, great. And then what happens? Well, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you care for one another? Do you risk vulnerability? No, but when we sing the doxology every week, ooh, I just feel like we love one another. <laughs> Sentimentalize or spiritualize. John has something to say about that. First John 4, we'll start in verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The first thing we want to say here is that we love one another because God is love. We love one another because God is love. Now, in saying that, we need to add just a couple of qualifiers to this. This phrase, God is love, ought not to be inverted to mean that love is God. Now, we, that could be a whole separate sermon in itself, so let me just point out the, the obvious here. It's an obvious logical fallacy to say that if God is love, then therefore love is God. It, it, it's the same as looking at these chairs and saying these chairs are made of wood, therefore every wooden thing is a chair. No, it's not. Or like with my kids, when they say, which team are the Broncos? Oh, the Broncos are the team in white. And then next week they see another team in white. Is that the Broncos? No. Not every white team is the Broncos. White jersey team, right? So anyway, whatever. Okay, here we go. Um, (laughs) So... To say, in saying that God is love, we are not saying that the reverse is true, that love is God. And the danger of that, let me just say this, is that in our culture, we, we run the risk of taking a particular form of love and then making it absolute. So take, for example, romantic love, a good kind of love. But when we say that love is God, then that romantic love has the power to run and dictate everything in your life. So if you have romantic feelings for this individual, therefore I need to be with this person. And then after you get married to this person and you don't have those romantic feelings anymore, you say, you know what, I should not be with this person. Okay, So, so you can see it, we are in dangerous ground when we begin to invert God is love to mean love is God. In fact, C.S. Lewis goes so far as to say, when love becomes a God, love becomes a demon. Begins to bring torment in life. But another thing we have to note is that John, even in his short little letter, doesn't just say that God is love. He also says God is light. And he also says that God is righteous. And that even though we believe that that love is at the very core of his being, it is not all that we must say when we talk about God. There is more to who he is. I think the thing that John wants us to focus on when he says God is love, let us love one another, is that God is fiercely personal and dynamic. See, we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks that some of the people in John's congregations were from this Greek background and the, the Greek idea of a God was an unfixed or an unmoved being, the static deity, God. And John's saying, Yahweh, the covenant God, is not static. He's dynamic. And he's so fiercely personal that all of these stories we have of this God are are sometimes surprising. You're like, God, why are you working with these people? And you're like, God, isn't that sort of, aren't you kind of changing a little bit of the way that you do things when you do this? And, And aren't you? And he's like, yeah, right. Because God is so fiercely personal that it's impossible sometimes to keep him caged up and domesticated. He wants in with his people, even if it means meeting them where they are, in the dirt of where they are, in the mess of where they are. So we love one another because God is love. Now, if we stop right here and we say, okay, so what does that mean? What does that look like? Verse 11, if you skip down with me in 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I love this because it seems that John is saying, okay, look, if you want to know what this really looks like to love one another, let me just say that, it, that we can't fall in the trap of spiritualizing this. See, there were some mystics in John's day that said, that claimed to have seen God, claimed to have had these mystical visions of God. And John says, okay, let me set the record straight. First of all, nobody has seen God. But if you want to make God visible, love one another. You want to make God visible? Love one another. Now, I think this is such a powerful challenge to us because some of us tend to be more comfortable saying, ooh, I had these visions and there was gold dust and there was glory clouds and there was goosebumps and I saw God. And John's saying, you want to see God? Love one another. What our city needs is not a goosebump revival. What our city needs is to see the people of God actually loving their neighbor as themselves. Imagine that. Imagine if we didn't stop with praying for the, for the homeless in our city and didn't stop by saying we put together blessing bags but began to say, God, what does it look like to love one another in the church and let it overflow into loving another? What does it look like to actually do this And John says, look, once you start living that out, guess what? Now everybody can see God because this is what it looks like. Years ago, I heard a story of a from uh, a, a guy who was one of the execs at Integrity Music. Back in those days, it was called Hosanna. Anyone part of the Hosanna cassette club? You know, my parents were. And, um, and so this guy told the story of going to visit Mother Teresa and bringing her a few Hosanna cassette tapes. And they says, you know, Mother Teresa, we brought you some, some music, you know, some praise and worship tapes. And she politely explained that they don't have music in their community because they don't want anything to distract them from the care of these children. So now he's feeling a little bit embarrassed, you know, whoops, you know. It's like not only was my gift declined, but I kind of subtly got this, you know. And so he decides to take the posture of a student. And he says, well, Mother Teresa, what, what is worship to you? And she says, for me... It is to find the least of these and to treat them like Jesus. For me, it is to see the face of Christ in the face of the least of these. See, this is not spiritualizing love. This is saying, you want to love God? Begin to tangibly love one another and all of a sudden God becomes visible. If we want a clue of what it might look like to actually love one another, we ought to look at the way that God has loved us. This is the logic of John's text. He keeps linking these two things, God's love for us and our love for one another. And if we meditate on this long enough, what we begin to see is that actually the most radical expression of love is forgiveness. The most radical expression of love is forgiveness. Some of you are thinking, well, oh, wait a minute, you know, Glenn, love one another. Well, I, don't, I can't, can't do this thing, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not always around the, the needy or the least of these or whatever, and you know, I'm, just a, I'm just an accountant, or I'm just a realtor, or I'm just a dad, or I'm just a mom, or I'm just a kid, or I'm just a student. And, you know. No, 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 let's, let's, let's bring this to a place that we can all catch. The most radical expression of love is forgiveness. Now, to do this subject justice, if we were to just talk about forgiveness, we could do a whole long series on it, right? 
We could talk for weeks about this, what forgiveness is and what it isn't. But for our sake this morning, let's just say a few things about this. First of all, forgiveness is not diminishing the wrong. Forgiveness is not diminishing the wrong. It is not saying, oh, that's fine. It's no big deal. It's fine. That's diminishing the wrong. That's not forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness requires naming the wrong, which, wait for it, might require a conversation. Might require saying to someone, I need to tell you that when you did this, it hurt me in these ways. It requires naming the wrong. Secondly, forgiveness not only doesn't diminish the wrong, forgiveness is also not permission to the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is not, oh, okay, so I forgive you, so let's just keep hanging out again so you can keep punching me or whatever. Now, we talk about this subject, it can get heavy very quickly. So I want to use a lighthearted example, okay? Imagine you're on a plane and you've got a very important meeting as soon as you land. So you've got your best outfit on, shirt, whatever, you know, and the person next to you has got this cup of coffee, and they're a little bit careless, very careless, and the coffee goes, and it spills all over your shirt. And you're like, ah! Now, <laughs> you could diminish the wrong and say, hey, it's no big deal, it's fine. I mean, I don't really have an important job interview as soon as I land, client meeting, whatever, right? You can't diminish the wrong, so you have to say, man, that was the only shirt I packed for this trip. Can't diminish the wrong. I've got, got to name it. And then when the person says, well, let me, can I buy you something? Maybe a new shirt when we get to the airport. We'll find one of those shops or whatever. You know. The second move that forgiveness makes after naming the wrong is to, is to make the move that says, you don't owe me. Now, please hear me. This doesn't yet mean I trust you. Let's be friends. Let's hang out. It's just the move that says, you don't owe me. So you say to this person, okay, it's all right. I'll take care of this. I know how I can get another shirt. I'll take care of this. No, no, no. I owe you another. I mean, what is it, like 10 bucks? You're like, do you know what this shirt is? A little higher, would you? 20, 25, 25, 30. No, no. Look, it's a lot more than that, but you don't owe me. Now, You might also say, but could you do me a favor and not order another coffee? (laughs) Or you might say, flight attendant, could I sit over there, please, right? So so again, it's not permission to be wronged again. But it's a move that says, I named the wrong and you don't owe me. Over the last two nights, because it takes two nights to watch this movie, at my wife's urging, we watched the full four-hour Kenneth Branagh edition of Hamlet. And, uh, you know, sometimes we feel very, you know, high culture. We're not, but it's sometimes. But, so we watched it over two nights, a couple hours each night. And, you know, by the time it's over, you realize this whole play is essentially about the destructiveness of vengeance. And if you were to say it, one reflection on the play might be that vengeance is more destructive than an invading army. Sorry, spoiler alert, okay? Everybody dies at the end, but you've had a couple hundred years to read the play, so there you go. But at the end, when this invading army comes in and finds that everybody's dead, all of a sudden it hits you. The damage of unforgiveness 
within is far more destructive than the threat of violence from without. You say, well, Glenn, I, I, I hear that and um, I, I feel that. But there's no way I can just say to a person, you don't owe me. Because what's the implication of that? If I'm saying you don't owe me, actually what I'm saying is I'll bear the weight of it. I'll bear the cost of this. And it might be fine if we're talking about a $50 shirt, but it's not fine when it's, and you can fill in the blank. Say, Glenn, I can't just say you don't owe me because I can't bear the weight of their wrong. What are we to do with that? If we skip back in our text here to verse 9, listen to what John says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, when you hear this word, propitiation, you're thinking, I don't even know what that means. It's one of those churchy words. I mean, it's not a word you use every day. Right? It's actually not even a word that the Bible uses all that much. The two instances of this word both appear in John's letter. Propitiation. What is that? Over and over again, three times in these cluster of verses, John says, God sent, God sent, God sent. He sent Jesus to be the Savior. He sent Jesus to rest. He sent Jesus into the world. He sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. So what is this word? If you were to kind of dig a little bit, you'll find out that there's some well, well-worn debates about how we should understand this. One voice, one community says, well, propitiation means to, to, to satisfy something vertical, to, to satisfy uh, maybe the, the punishment or, or, or maybe even wrath of God. And the other says, no, 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 it's to, it's to remove the stain of the sin, It's to look at the shirt with the coffee on it and to say, stain be gone, and it's gone. It's it's about mitigating the effects of sin, not the price of it, not the penalty of it. But our Old Testament reading this morning invites us to see it as both. Now, I don't know if you were scratching your head when you heard the Old Testament reading about a couple of goats and blood and altar, and you're like, this is so weird. And you're probably, you're listening to it, and maybe you're thinking, see, this is why I don't read the Bible. (laughs) Because I don't understand blood and goats, and this is creepy. But imagine this setting several thousand years ago. Back it up. And imagine that in many, many pagan settings, there was this sense that there's a God or several gods and he's always ticked off. And he's angry. And this pagan god is like, Rawr, like Godzilla, you know? And that the only way to sort of keep him away from our children is to give him a blood sacrifice. That was the MO of pagan religions. Now, what Leviticus says in the light of that is actually beautiful, not offensive. Because what Leviticus says is it doesn't talk about this atonement in order to keep away an angry, hungry, bloodthirsty God, but rather to say to us, how do we deal with the very real fact 
that we've wronged this God. See, if we caricature this and say, oh, God is a bloodthirsty, angry deity, then we'll dismiss all of it and say, God is cool. God is totally cool with my sin, yo. Like, it's okay, man, chill out. But listen, just as you just <laughs> felt when I said, Let, say to the person, you don't owe me, just as that thing kind of rose up in you and you said, well, I can't do that, I have been wronged. Just as you can't simply release, why do we think that the God who created all things can look at our sin and say, eh, it's okay, eh. There is something very real we must not dismiss about the fact that we have wronged God. But Leviticus helps us say, you don't have to paint him as this angry, bloodthirsty, pagan God. He's not that. But as the sovereign God, he has been wronged. Something must make right the wrong. And so the story in Leviticus is about two goats. The tale of two goats. The one goat they would take and they would sacrifice and the priest would take the blood of this goat and he would walk into the Holy of Holies one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And he would walk in and in the, 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 the tabernacle would have a few sections to it and in the very inner chamber, one day a year, the priest would come in and there is this box, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence and on top of it are these, made from one piece of gold, are these two angels and in between it is the mercy seat and inside the box are several things, one of which are the tablets of, the tablets of stone that Moses received the commandments. So why am I telling you all this? Because there's symbolism here. They were learning early on that you can't deal with the law without the covering of blood. The law will always speak to condemn. But the covering of blood says, you have been atoned. And so one day a year, he'd take the blood from one goat and he'd sprinkle it on the seat and say, okay, look, there it is. You've been set right with God. And then with the second goat, they would bring this goat forward and the high priest would put his hands on this poor, unfortunate creature and say, we confess over you are all the sins of Israel. And then they would send him out, out of the camp, into the wilderness. Get out of here. It's gone. The goat has left the building. Everyone rejoice. And all of this points forward to Jesus. Because Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us, with his own blood sprinkled it upon the mercy seat in heaven that made once and for all this atonement that all of us have been set right with God. Now imagine if there was only one goat in the story. Then you might think, well, that's great. Someone dealt with the penalty of my sin. But who can convince me that the blame is no longer there? You see, imagine if you said to the person on the airplane, it's okay, I'll pay for a new shirt. They'll say, okay, great. But they're going to get off the plane. They're going to call their friend and say, dude, super bummer, man, but I spilled, my I spilled my coffee on someone's shirt. Because you may take care of the price, but who can take care of the blame? say, so, well, but I still did it. 
And the story in Leviticus says, no, no, no. The God of Israel was giving us a hint that he is the God that provides not only for the penalty of sin to be paid for, but for the blame of that sin to be removed. And Jesus arrives on the scene, takes upon himself the full weight of our sin, of our rebellion, and says, I'll pay the price of this. I will satisfy the honor of God. And like the goat, he was sent outside the city to die, taking on himself not just the punishment, but also the blame. How can you say to another person, you don't owe me? It's not because you can carry it. It's because he has carried it. The power to be able to say, you don't owe me, comes from knowing that he's carried it. The God has carried the penalty and the blame. Ultimately, we love one another because we have been loved by God. Ultimately, we love one another because we have been loved by God. This is why when Jesus says all those strange things in the Gospels about when you forgive one another, you need to forgive one another, otherwise the Father won't forgive you. It's not, again, your legalistic alarms are going off. And you're like, oh my gosh, I held unforgiveness towards my Father, and so therefore I'm going to hell. That's not how you should read those gospel passages. What Jesus is saying is the same door that lets forgiveness in is the same door that lets forgiveness out. And that a sign that you're holding back forgiveness from one another might be a sign that you're holding back the forgiveness of God flooding into your life. And that in the end, the answer to all of this is not to white knuckle it and say, I really need to go and work on my forgiveness issues. No, 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 no. And ultimately the answer is to say, behold the love of God for you. And once you open up the door that lets forgiveness in, all of a sudden it begins to flow out to others. The same door that lets forgiveness in is the same door that lets forgiveness out. This is why John, six times in his letter, keeps calling us beloved. Once in chapter two, twice in chapter three, and three times in chapter four. Why? Even though there weren't chapter markings, this is John like a good preacher ramping up his point. And as he gets near the end of his sermon, near the end of his letter, he keeps saying it, beloved, 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 if you want to grow in your love from, for one another, behold the love of God for you. Behold the forgiveness of God for you. We don't grow in forgiveness because we're white-knuckling it. We grow in it when we learn to drink deeply from the fountain of the Father's love for us. Amen? Amen.